ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director here at EAA, and one of your hosts across the table from me is... I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Manager. And with us today, we have a really interesting guest. Uh, it's an avenue that I don't think we've looked into uh, on The Green Dot, uh, and certainly not in the speaker series, who she is coming to speak in our museum, and that is medical helicopter pilot Corinne Fisick. Um Corinne or Kai, thank you for, for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, one of the, I think it's one of the questions, if our listeners know anything about me, uh, they know it's my favorite question to ask because it's, it's always a different story. What really really lit your, your fuse to go fly? What was your first experience that said, wow, this is something I want to go do? You know, I feel like I was a little bit of a latecomer into aviation, not incredibly late, but I didn't even think to become a pilot until I was in my 20s. Um, I think I had pursued a couple uh, other career choices kind of half-heartedly and nothing stuck. And then a friend when I was about 22 inspired me to try going for a helicopter flight and uh, she was pursuing the same career. And um, it was just the right amount of fun and excitement and work and uh, kept me engaged. So I signed up for school and here I am. So when you're going through school, did, was it always just helicopters? Were, were fixed wing even in the picture or was it just strictly you wanted to be in helicopters? I started right away in helicopters and I uh, went through a two-year program with a, a, a community college basically. Um, I did end up adding on airplane readings later on. So I do have a private pilot, single engine, and um, an instrument reading in airplanes as well. But helicopters was the first direction for me. So for listeners that uh, may know some of our past, uh, I used to work at a company called Stat Medevac in Pittsburgh. And uh, I was uh, air operations manager there. So I oversaw uh, helicopter dispatching. So um, I can tell you that, that that's pretty rare. At least when I was there, most of the helicopter pilots we had were ex-military. So to see, you know, uh, a medical helicopter pilot who is strictly civilian background, that that's a little bit different. It is, yeah. I always say I went the expensive route. <laughs> it's a fairly expensive school to go through. Um, I'd say here at our program now, we have probably about 50-50 military versus civilian so the, I think there's been kind of a new generation of more civilian pilots going into it. Um, at the same time, what I learned about flight schools recently is it's gotten even more expensive. So I think there's, once again, kind of fewer civilian pilots going through training. So it's interesting to see kind of the ebb and flow of military versus civilian. So can you tell us um, a little bit about, I mean, obviously, flying medical helicopters is a pretty coveted um, position in, uh, in, in the rotary wing world. Uh, how did your career progress uh, for you to get there? Yeah, I think I went a pretty normal route of career progression where you're just building hours. So I started as a flight instructor. I uh, worked at two different flight schools. And then my next job was as a tour pilot in the Grand Canyon. I did that for one season. Uh, following that, I then did a couple of years in the Gulf of Mexico, where I was flying workers and parts out to the oil rigs in the ocean. And then three years ago, I got this job. 
Well, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the training process as far as just getting your helicopter ticket? Tell us about uh, types of aircraft and uh, maybe some adventures in training. Sure, yeah. Um, well, I went, like I mentioned, to a two-year community college, which then worked with a flight school. So, And it was actually the very beginning of this program when I started. So I was in the first year of graduates at this uh, college in Colorado. Uh, we trained primarily in Schweitzer 300s, which are also called uh, Hughes 269. And then I think they were rebought or reacquired by Sikorsky a number of years ago. So the, the training helicopters you'll see in the industry are either the Schweitzer 300, like I flew, or the Robinson helicopters, the R-22 and the R-44. I'd say the Robinsons are more common. I did all of my primary flight training in Colorado, which is high density altitude. So at the time when I started about 16 years ago, um, the Schweitzers were just a better aircraft for that location. Uh, I had some really good experience there with like high density altitude training and mountain flying. Um, and yeah, then you, uh, you kind of just work through your ratings. You start as a private pilot, add your instrument rating, get your commercial pilot certificate. And then to be marketable at all, you've got to be a flight instructor. So um, I did that and then also did my instrument instructor rating. And then I think I worked as a flight instructor for about two years. And that's really when you learn the most, when you're teaching other people how to fly. It's really great experience. Um, total training, yeah, it was about two and a half years to from start to finish for my helicopter training. And then, like I, I mentioned, about two years of working as a flight instructor as well before I got to Kind of a golden number is a thousand hours where you then move on to your first turbine job. So can you tell me about what might be some of the challenges you faced as an instructor in a helicopter? Um, well, I mean, typical challenges, you have a huge amount of responsibility. You're taking somebody who has no experience flying at all and um, basically teaching them to fly, you know. So... You have, I mean, you have to be monitoring what the aircraft is doing, what the student is doing, um, keeping everybody safe, uh, making sure there's an adequate amount of challenge and progression. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, every student is different. Every, every student progresses at different rates. Um, some people don't end up making it through, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges is kind of um, helping figure out people figure out the right path for them if helicopters is not the right way for them to go. Um, but it's really actually very fun. I think being an instructor was probably one of my favorite jobs. I also, um, I took a detour in aviation about two years in and I, I went back to school and got a physics degree and worked as a high school physics teacher for a couple of years. So um, I, my second instruction job was after having taught high school and to go from a high school classroom back to helicopter students was just like, it, it didn't even feel like a job anymore. It was so much fun. You know, your students are very self-motivated. They're showing up because they want to be there. They know it's expensive and they're paying for it. So it's really a very, very fun job. So you're uh, off flying helicopters and you decided you wanted to figure out how they worked. Uh, is, that, is that why you went back to <laughs> yeah, the school for physics? <laughs> yeah, I just had an opportunity to go back to school. And I, uh, I always enjoyed physics with the mathematics. And yeah, it then definitely correlated to my aviation experience. And uh, it was a, a fun little detour, but I uh, was happy to be back in aviation. 
I'm sure. I'm sure it helped with the uh, with the flight instruction too. I think I had an instructor once who was uh, who had a, either a physics or engineering background, and he would always tell me, "There's no free ride in physics." And uh, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Absolutely, I think that's what I enjoyed about it. You know, it's very hands on. You have to do the work and really understand it to get through it. Yeah. Now, did you know, kind of going in, that that your goal was medical helicopters, or or was it just you were kind of unaware of that or, or did you, you know, did you go in knowing you had a specific goal in mind? No, I, I would say I came into the career with a pretty open mind. Um, I was aware of the different avenues you could go with helicopter piloting. And um, I really have just kind of pursued the next step that worked for me. Um, so it was not my end destination, but I'm really happy I'm here. It works out very well for me. It's a really interesting job as well. Um, I really enjoy the people that I work with and I get to learn so much from them. So it's a, it's a neat place to end up for sure. And, um, just before you got to the medical helicopters, you know, you mentioned you did, uh, you did some tourism flying in the uh, Grand Canyon. Do you, were any, I'd imagine that a couple stories come up flying around tourists. Uh, any, anything that, that sticks out in your mind? A, a particular story. I mean, it was it was an interesting experience, mostly because you meet so many people from all over the world. You know, I'd say at least fifty percent of the people we were flying were coming from other countries, so you get to hear a lot of their stories and experiences. Um, it, and it was just really neat. It's a very awe-inspiring place to show people. And we would we would do landing tours, so we would land at the bottom of the canyon and all have a picnic together and fly back to Las Vegas where we were based. So fun, fun experience for sure. Was the uh, were there like any challenging sort of like updrafts or anything like that as you're flying around and through the canyon? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, certain seasons it can be very very windy in the desert there, uh, so you can get some pretty turbulent conditions. That's awesome. Um, okay, so at what point at what point are you aware of uh, a position with uh, UW Med Flight and that medical helicopters are going to be in your future? So I I did that seasonal job in Las Vegas. And um, actually, the other half of my story is my husband is also a pilot, a helicopter pilot here with UW. So um, he we moved to Vegas. I was flying tours there. He was flying air medical at the time. Then he ended up getting a job flying tours in Vegas which he really enjoyed as well. Um, and then that's when I started commuting to the Gulf of Mexico. So I was commuting to Louisiana. He was working in Vegas, but we just, it wasn't where we wanted to stay for our family. So we started looking around for air medical positions and he found this job here with UW through Metro Aviation, who is our employer. We are contracted with UW. Um, we didn't know anything about Wisconsin. We <laughs> So we kind of Googled Madison, we, uh, we, and then we talked to some people who were familiar with the area. Um, it looked like it was going to be a good fit for our family. So he took the position here. He started about a year before I did, and then I continued to commute to Louisiana. Um, but we've had a pretty significant pilot shortage, I think kind of across the industry right now, um, for some time. So about a year into us living here in in Madison, they recruited me to be a pilot for the program as well. So now we both work for UW. We work uh, opposite shifts on the same week at different bases. And it just works out really nicely for our family. We have uh, two little girls as well. So this situation has been the most optimal 
for two pilots coordinating a family together. Um, neither of us has to commute anymore, and one of us is almost always home with the kids, which is really nice. So your kids have, like, the coolest parents ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I don't think they think so. It's just, like, a normal everyday job to them. I feel like I need other kids to tell them that. <laughs> um Interesting. I was actually, uh, for a brief period of time as we were transitioning at STAT, uh, I was a Metro employee. So oh, I, I got, yeah, I had to go down and do the training down in Shreveport and, and everything. Yeah, down there. Sure. So yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's cool stuff. Yeah, they're good people. I really like the company. Absolutely. Yeah, great people there. Um, so maybe for those who, are, who aren't really that aware of what goes into it, tell us about you know, the role of the medical helicopter and then maybe what a normal night for you looks like. Sure. Yeah. So our role um, is basically to respond to calls either at hospitals or through like EMS services to transport a patient from A to B. So that might be a scene on the ground or it might be a hospital. I'd say probably about, uh, Maybe 60% of our flights are inner hospital transports from one hospital to another. So you go from maybe a rural uh, hospital to a hospital that has a better care system um, or a more, more capable system for whatever that patient needs. And then that other 40% is going to be seen calls. So that could be your car accident. That could be, um, you know, it could be a medical intervention as well. Like if somebody has a heart attack at home, they call an ambulance. The ambulance shows up and we coordinate with that ambulance to meet them somewhere and transport that patient where they need to go. Um, a normal day for us, we're, uh, we work, at least at my base, we work uh, seven days on, seven days off, and it's either night shift or day shift. So we put in a 12-hour day. A pilot can fly up to 14 hours, but that's the FAA limitation. So it will be anywhere from 12 to 14 hours for seven days in a row. I work with two other crew members, typically. I have a nurse on board, um, and then UW is unique in that they're one of the only programs in the nation that staffs a doctor as part of their crew as well. So I have a doctor and a nurse. Um, at my base, we have basically five nurses who are uh, stationed at that base that I work with. And then I think through the program, we have about 20 to 25 doctors who rotate through. And some of these doctors live in Wisconsin. Some of them fly in from other places. Um, but we do end up working with a lot of the same crew over and over again. But a typical day for us, we'll, we all get together and then... Um, you know, I do my helicopter pre-flight, takes about 30 minutes total. Uh, we run kind of a daily risk assessment, look at the weather for the day, uh, any anything else that might affect the flight. And then we'll sit down as a crew and do a brief. Um, and that's just coming together to see kind of where everyone's coming from for the day, how everyone's doing. And then we just run over our standard operating procedures, uh, talk about how much weight we can carry, what the weather conditions are, any other uh, considerations that may impact our flights for the day and then we are on standby so it's kind of like a firehouse where we all just hang out we have uh, radios waiting for a call when we get a call um, there's a specific procedure because uh, I think one thing that they had to acknowledge early in the um, helicopter ambulance industry is the pressure and desire to get the job done you know um, 
there was kind of this mission mentality that they really tried to discourage because people really want to go out and help people. So when we get a call, the only information we get is we we say, where are we picking up this patient and where are we taking them and what's the patient's weight? So they keep it as minimal as possible. So any of the factors about the patient will not impact our decision making. So that comes through on a radio. I run a quick risk assessment. I look at I look at the weather. I uh, look at you know fuel load and where we're going, and then I make the decision to accept the flight or not. If there's anything abnormal, I then coordinate with my crew members. Um, abnormal would be maybe like a high weight, you know, or any abnormal uh, weather conditions or anything else like that. Um, and then we all head out to the helicopter. I submit a risk assessment from my end to my operational control center, which is Metro. Um, there's a control center basically watching us all the time. They're there as kind of our fourth crew member to help us uh, along the way. And, and you know, they're also part of the go, no go decision making. Anybody on the crew can say no go and we, we don't go. Um, once they approve the flight that I've submitted the risk assessment for, we hop in the helicopter, get it going, and head to that patient. And all of that usually takes about, I'd say my average is probably about eight minutes from tone to lift. You know, one of the questions um, that I always thought uh, was interesting, and I'd like to hear your answer to it too, is, uh, you know, how does that feel? Because, you you know, on the night shift, uh, at least at our bases, you were allowed to sleep at night. And then... Um, you know, I mean, you were supposed to come to work rested, but there was a place, you know, bunks and stuff for people to kind of crash out for a while. And then that Claxton goes off. And, Mm -hmm. you know, is it hard to clear your head to get ready to fly? Like, how does that feel? You know, I thought it would be, but um, you get going pretty quickly. It has been my experience. We have basically three different rooms. We have like a common area for everybody to get together. And then there's a doctor office, pilot office and nurse office. And we all have um, sleeping quarters in our offices. And um, so, yeah, you would think it'd take a couple of minutes just to kind of orient yourself, but maybe it's just conditioning at this point. But when that tone goes off, my brain just goes straight into action. I, I don't think we're maybe one or two minutes longer at night than during the day to get off the ground. So I, I think a, a question a lot of uh, uh, probably a lot of pilots would uh, w- would be curious about is um, when you go to those scene calls where it could be anywhere. Um, how do you how, how do you figure out where you're going to put the uh, put the helicopter down? Um, you know how do you assess a uh, you know a kind of a an improvised landing zone? Do you scout those areas in advance in like particularly busy areas things like that? Well, this is yeah I had to learn about this as well. Um, it's actually all set up by ground crews. I did not realize that's how it was going to be when I started the job. But when we get there, there's a fire department coordinating with us and also an EMS um, carrier. So the ambulance is there to get the patient to us. Um, and then a fire crew is going to be there to set up, set up a landing zone. So whichever community we're going to, that fire department is called out to the scene. They... Sometimes we have pre-designated landing zones where they've already landed helicopters and they've kind of vetted the area. 
Um, and then on occasion, they don't have that. They might use somebody's yard or they might shut down part of a road. Um, often we're landing in fields, farm fields around here. Um, but that ground crew will usually set up a marked landing zone for us using cones or strobe lights. And then we talk to them on our way in. So my my nurse rides up front with me, and they're usually responsible for the communication with the ground crew. They talk to them. We get an LZ brief. Um, they tell us of any obstructions in the area, kind of the dimensions of the of the landing zone, what we're looking for, any hazards they can think of. And then when we get there, we do a couple laps of a high reconnaissance circle around it to evaluate the landing zone. Um, they do a great job choosing them usually, so I've never had to have them move the landing zone, but that's certainly an option. If it didn't look like something that was safe for me to get into, I'd coordinate with them and they would move it. I think there are some programs, um, even with Metro and other states, where uh, the helicopter is also the first responder. And in that scenario, we they do have authority, of course, to evaluate an LZ and land themselves in it. But here, my experience has been there's always been a fire crew there to basically secure an LZ for us and make sure it's adequate. So the first responders actually have, um, is there like somebody in the crew who has specialized training to set up an LZ for you? Or do you, do you, do you work with those folks, uh, you know, off calls, things like that? Yeah, we actually do, I, I would say, annual or semi-annual training with local fire departments to do LZ training. So I'm sure they do a lot of training without us behind the scenes, but we meet with them as well to do kind of simulated flights and talk to them about what we're looking for um, and help them out with any questions they have. So there's a lot of uh, collaboration, a lot of good teams out there that we work with. And um, I think generally the um, expectations are pretty clear and the communication is very good between the teams. So, and I know that your expertise is the front end of the helicopter, but can you tell people a little bit, uh, even just a high level view of what, what the back end of the helicopter is like? Sure. So, yeah, as we are heading to the patient, my crew is, uh, I, I guess I didn't mention that earlier. So we get that initial call out of, you know, this patient weighs so much and this is where you're going. Once we accept the flight and we're in the air, um, after we've reached an uh, acceptable altitude, like cruise altitude to end sterile cockpit mode, my crew will call back and they get a patient report. So that's when they learn everything about the patient that my dispatch center has. So um, their work starts mentally right from the start. They're learning what's going on with the patient, what they need to be planning for, what equipment they need to bring as they go pick up this patient. They're maybe getting medications ready, um, basically just anything they need to do uh, just to be prepared. So then when they get the patient, the nurse transitions to the back of the helicopter and the nurse and doctor are both sitting back there. And um, usually, I mean, typically they want to have a pretty stabilized patient before they're loaded onto the helicopter. And then at that point, they're just monitoring medications, doing anything else they need to do to make sure this patient is stable to get them delivered to where they need to go. It's very fascinating. I've learned so much about the medical industry listening to what they do in the back. So I guess one of the questions I also wanted to bring up is, and we were talking a little bit before you came on, you were uh, you were the pilot of the first all-female, was it UW med flight uh, crew? 
Yeah, correct. I was the first female pilot that has ever worked for UW since 1985, simply because uh, in the helicopter industry, I think it's about 2% of all pilots are female. Uh, so I was the first one for them. And then about four days into working with UW, I also had a female doctor and a female nurse. So it was really exciting for them to have the first all-female crew. I remember when that uh, that happened because, uh, you know, there were some press that came out. And I remember seeing the picture of you guys with the helicopter. It was That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was a really neat day. Um, so do you guys all, is it an all, uh, is it EC-135 uh, helicopter that you fly? We're flying EC-145 now. And it's a, a specific type that Metro has made. It's called an E-Lite. So it has a slightly different navigation system called a Genesis compared to your traditional Garmin. Um, GPS system, so 145 E-Lite. And what, what kind of range do you have? Uh, what are the what are the like time? We used to do it in time. We'd say two hours and 45 sure. minutes or whatever. Yeah, typically on a normal day, I'm carrying about two and a half hours of fuel, and that leaves me, I would say, about 200 kilos that I could pick up um, without burning any fuel at all. So our, if I needed to go full fuel, we're looking at about three hours. Um, a fuel that I could use. And with full fuel, I'd probably be able to take about an 85 kilo patient. So it's really very good range. We went from, when I started, we were flying the EC-135 and uh, the difference in range between the two is probably an extra hour of gas that I get to carry without any patient weight limitations, really. So, do you have kind of a defined territory um, that your that, that your group works, or is um, is it more tied to the hospital? How exactly does that work for you to be called out versus um, you know another uh, medical helicopter provider? Yeah, we. Um, so, I work in Portage specifically. UW has three bases right now. One of them is based in Madison. One's in Iowa County or Mineral Point, and then mine is in Portage. We. Uh, in Portage, we take care of kind of the northern part of the state, where there are certainly other providers as well. If you get further north and, and east, there's definitely other helicopter groups. Um, typically, if a patient is coming back to UW, they would call a UW helicopter. If there's a scene call, like um, anything, a car accident or anything, the practice is that they call the, the closest provider. So we end up being fairly busy in Portage. Um, we we kind of service like the Baraboo, um, Adams County, Beaver Dam, kind of um, even up to like Moston, New Lisbon, that area. And um, yeah, so we, we stay busy. I mean, generally we're doing in our facility, but um, with the... Uh, with the scene calls as well, we're off in the closest helicopter. And I guess we have to ask this as well. Um, you know, I'd, I'd imagine it was uh, a little bit, a little bit more memorable than the uh, than the tourist flights. Is there? There's uh, there's got to be um, one or two flights that are particularly uh, uh, impactful um, that you've uh, you, that you've been on. Absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of specific stories to share because, you know, that we're usually seeing people on their worst day, you know, Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there are many that, that stick with you for sure. 
I know um, when I worked, you know, for Stat, I I could remember just this feeling of, and and maybe it'll it'll touch uh, uh, your feeling as well. I just remember this feeling of, you know, I was an aviation junkie, loved airplanes, and then somehow I just felt really lucky that I was able to use something I really loved in order to actually help save lives. Like, that was definitely a feeling I had. I was very proud of that. Uh, would you say that that kind of resonates uh, in your uh, depart- your your unit as well? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It's very validating just to have that impact on your community. You know, one of the questions, one of the challenges we always had, and I think it's something that people don't think about, uh, is weather. Um, That's an ongoing trend throughout your entire shift. You're working a 12-hour shift. The weather from the beginning of that shift to the weather um, at the end could be vastly different. Uh, How how do you keep an eye on the weather? Do you just kind of do it uh, regularly? Is there a certain system you use? Um, Well, there's lots of tools to use, but most of them can be condensed to foreplight, which I think is pretty broadly used across aviation. So that's what I'm usually using to track the weather. Um, You kind of have a good sense right at the start of the day based off forecasts, what the entire day is going to look like. Um, We have limitations through the winter um, as we're we're approaching now with icing. We don't have any icing, uh, anti-icing or de-icing on our helicopters. So that's a real limiting factor. But um, all of the aviation tools have really come a long way, so you can get a very good picture of what you're going to be dealing with kind of at the very start of the day. One of the things that really was a, a weird sensation for me is the uh, uh, landing on a road, like landing on a highway. Um, mm-hmm. That Can you talk about that? That is just a weird one. Um, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, because they'll shut down you know, all the traffic for you. Highways are actually kind of great landing zones because they're usually pretty clear as a nice hard surface, um, easy to transport the patient, uh, but it's uh, it can be kind of an ordeal, you know, depending on the, the size of the highway for sure. And then you still have to make sure it's wide enough. We have um, some, you know, county highways here where it's two lane roads and unless you have a lot of clearance on either side, that's that may not be enough. Um, clearance for your helicopter and another thing you have to consider with highways or roads is that you're usually going to have wires with them and wires are a very significant hazard to helicopters they're often difficult to see especially at night so you have to be very vigilant looking for all those um, obstacles absolutely if if uh, i know we're kind of fighting the clock here uh, time goes fast uh, when we're having fun here um if there was a piece of advice that maybe you'd like to give someone looking to you know a young person wanting to get into flying aviation or getting into flying uh, medical helicopters is there is there one certain piece of advice you'd like to to give them um i guess i just encourage perseverance you know um that for some reason there's a pretty low completion rate, at least from my school. I think I started with 11 students and only two of us finished the program. Um, I think it's easy to get discouraged when training training is expensive and even when you're competing for those uh, initial jobs and it seems like everybody needs that time building job. And, um, it seems like it's going to be impossible to get the hours you need. If you do persevere, it will work out. And I, that's really valuable to know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
Um, well, we are, yeah, we are coming to the end of our, uh, of our time here. Um, I guess I would actually just flip it back to, to Chris for a second, just, uh, given that this was a past life of yours as well. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about, um, you know, your time working the dispatch end? And I know you also got to fly and, um, be part of some flight crews as well. Uh, you know, for me, um, and, and, and Kaya, it'd be interesting to hear if, uh, you agree with this, but, um, you know, you hear about like, I guess they would call it like that there's like a firehood or a firefighter brotherhood, you know, in the firehouses. I experienced, I think, probably as close as I will ever get to that in the aviation world. Um, the people that uh, I served with uh, in, that, in those departments and on those helicopters, are, uh, I'm just very proud to have been associated with them. So they are, uh, yeah, it's different to be in a room full of people you consider heroes, I'll tell you that. So, uh, um, amazing people, amazing talented people that could have been doing things for more money, uh, but they weren't because they wanted to use their talents to help save lives. And I, I my hat is off to those people. Um, I'm kind of, do you agree with, with, with that sentiment? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I work with amazing people right now. I think that's probably one of my favorite parts of the job. They're professional. They're so good at what they do. And, um, and yeah, there's a lot of camaraderie. Like we're on a, a team that, works very efficiently and we do a lot of good. Yeah. It's a very unique tool that's available to the emergency medical community that, you know, frankly, hasn't, wasn't always there. And, uh, you know, it, it's definitely saving lives. So that's, um, uh, that's great that you guys are both, both have, have been part of it. All right. Well, as we, Again, as we come to the end of the uh, the episode here, um, I just want to say thank you to uh, to Kai and to uh, and and also to Chris uh, for for the work that you've done in this uh, you know really really vital area and and um, uh, you know both of you have contributed to saving I, I don't know how many lives and that's that's uh, um, uh, very very important. Um, this is actually kind of a unique episode in that we usually record these speaker series in person with the with the uh, speaker um, the day that they are presenting so we can't necessarily uh, offer that that you the audience come and uh, see the speaker that we're that we're talking to right now but today we can because we are pre-recording this so um, Kai will be speaking here at the EA museum uh, on October 19th a Thursday um, so if you are in the uh, greater Oshkosh or Wisconsin area, um, come on up uh, Highway 41 and uh, um, uh, on over to uh, to the uh, EA Aviation Museum or EA Air Museum uh, to uh, to um, attend the speaker series if you can if you can make it. Yeah, 7 p.m. Thanks. Yeah, 7 p.m. So um, uh, again, uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks for all of your reviews. And, um, uh, Kai, thank you so much for, um, uh, for, for joining us today. We'll, uh, we'll hopefully see you around Wisconsin, uh, hopefully not in the, in the process of your official duties. Um, but, uh, um, thank you so much for being on and, uh, we'll see everybody else next time when you're clear to land on the green dot. <laughs>